Thank you, ladies. Good morning, church. <clears throat> Always excited about Christmas messages and been having some fun. Uh, I was saying in some of my other sermons that I've been here about a decade now and have preached Christmas many times, and, and I look for ways to, to preach that's not exactly the same. And this year we've done that by the way we've approached these messages. Today's sermon is titled Christmas pageantry. Now, don't be confused by the word. I know you're hearing the word pageantry and you're thinking about, you know, someone with a, trying to get a crown with a sash and some contest. I'm not talking about that because the word pageantry actually means splendid display, ceremony, colorful, rich, elaborate. And Christmas is a time full of displays, ceremonies, like we added that to our service, full of color, rich, elaborate in decorations. Now just think about, and my first slide I've got, uh, the nativity setup. How many of you have one of these at your house? I mean, growing up, we always did that. We get out, you know, and, and set it out, and sometimes you get it out, and like, we've lost, you know, a piece, and you're trying to find, you know, oh, it's just a sheep, you know, well, is it the Christ child? That's kind of important. It's got to be there, you know, but we're setting something out. Christmas is a time of display and this is what I'm kind of driving at today, is we're going to look at displays. In fact, a picture, in fact, you know, when I was looking up uh, Google Images of Nativity, I chose this one. It's interesting. There's an elephant in there. And I was like, I've never seen an elephant in the Nativity. But in that one, it is. I guess the way they set it up is it came with the Magi. You know, there's camels usually. But it's interesting. You look at a picture and it, make, it, it, it gives you thoughts, right? So... I'm going to give you some pictures. We're kind of having fun through the Christmas message season. Every beginning of this, the messages, I've got some pictures. These are instantly recognized scenes. When you see them, you should know them. And they convey the importance of a moment. Sometimes they will elicit emotion. They can even draw out wonder from you. Gazing. Many famous scenes like this. Iconic scenes pictures okay so i want you to think about when you see these what is the word that comes to your mind what is drawn out of you when you see these pictures here's the first one we know this one right iwo jima right and when you see that picture now these are my words you might have other words my word when i see that i think of respect so much respect for what it took for that picture to happen. How about the next one? Celebration, right? Victory. That's what comes to my mind when I see that. Okay, next one. Mm. Yeah, JFK, if you know what this picture is, this is this, the small son of JFK after he was assassinated. And this is the funeral procession and he was standing out there as his father is going by in the casket, and he salutes him. It's a very famous picture. When I see that, I think of sorrow. That's what I think about when I see that. Okay, next one. Do you know this one? Tiananmen Square, right? This is, when I see this, I think courage, you know, guts to stand there in front of those tanks and defiance like that. Okay, next one. What does this make you feel, right? This is Brown versus Board of education. Some people, embarrassment, shame, a lot of different emotions you might have. Next one. 
Do you know what this is? This is the Challenger explosion. See, I was, a, a, I think, a sixth or seventh grader in school. I remember when this happened, and it was shock. I remember that that is my response to this, always shock. We just couldn't believe it, couldn't believe it. Next one. Inspiration. We took down the Russians, right, in, in the Olympics. I mean, it was like something unbelievable. It couldn't, it could never have happened. They were so good. They had never lost, and we won. Inspiration, that's what I think of. Okay, next one. Now, this one to me is hope. This is, this is the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. And I don't know if you remember the line, President Reagan says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I remember there was a sense of hope, like, like, like unification, that, that things were getting better. Hope. How about this one? You know what this is? Yeah, this is where President Bush was when the planes hit the Twin Towers. He was in a uh, school with kids, and they were whispering to him what was going on. You look at his face, and there's just this sense of... I, see, when I think of this, I think of leadership. I think of he's processing what's going on. That's what I think of when I see it. And then to go with that, the next picture. See, I think of patriotism when I see that. Now, how about this one? This is a little bit different now. See, this one's not actually a picture, is it? This is a painting of a picture. No cameras existed back when Washington... This is Washington crossing the Delaware. He's going to go fight the, the battle to defeat the British. And there's a part of me that every time I've looked at this, I mean, there's very positive words that I would think about, but, but I've also always wondered, was it actually like that? You know, so there's a side of me that's like, is it, is it accurate? You know, because they're, they're going across the water to fight a battle. You know, would Washington have been, you know, like this? You know, it might have been like, you know, this. That's, what I, that's how I imagine it. But nevertheless, somebody came up with this is what it might have looked like, right? And that leads me back to this one, the nativity. What do you think of when you see that? Joy, amazement, wonder, also a little bit of the Washington, you know, it's not exactly like that. I mean, if you ever watch the movie, The Nativity, it's like it all came together in that moment. You know, the shepherds were there and all of a sudden they hear camels walking down and oh, there's the, and the wise men wander in and all in this moment, they all kind of knelt down and there was the photographer, take the picture. That's the moment you want right there. We captured it, right? Not, it did not happen exactly like that, you know, so there's a little bit of wonder about, you know, is it, is, is it totally accurate, right? But these scenes, this is what I'm driving at, is what, what is behind the scene? What is the emotion that comes out of you? What does it draw out of you? So on that note, we're going to lead into this message on Christmas pageantry. And this is what we've covered, Christmas worship. That was our first message. And we looked at the word worship, which means worth-ship, to ascribe worth to someone else. The word proskuneo that we looked at means to kiss forward in a direction. That's what the word worship means. We're drawing out of us how do you ascribe worth to Christ. And then last week we looked at this message, Christmas sayings, and the emphasis really was on singing. Not saying, but singing. That, 
man has this unique gift that they can give in ascribing worth to Christ in singing. Only man, as a creature of God, made in his image, can communicate with organized language through the sounds of pitch, duration, and harmony. A unique aspect that God has made in us. And we looked last week at how singing is our response to God, how singing is our rendezvous with God, how singing is our remedy to all the discouragement we might have in life. And so we're drawing us into, this is what my heart's desire was for this month in the Christmas season in December, was to bring us to a greater place of worship before the Christ child. And today, Christmas pageantry. This is considering everything that goes into the making of the moment to that scene because Christmas pageantry pageantry is a splendid scene. That's what it means. It's colorful. It's rich. It's grand. And there are many scenes, and Christmas is a season where we set them out and we put on all kinds of displays. And I want us to capture Christmas scenes, pageantry of Christmas. We're going to look at three of them all tying into the other messages to bring about greater worship in you as God's people. And I have said this, I like the pageantry of Christmas because it reminds me of a future greater pageantry. And that's where I'm driving you towards today, is a future pageantry. So, in transition to these scenes I want to look at, I'm going to go back to a picture the Iwo Jima picture. I put some statistics there because you just look at the picture, right? And you may not know everything that went into it. And I put it up there. There were 70,000 Marines that landed that fought this battle in different waves. There were 20,000 defenders. Nearly every defender was killed. The, the, The Japanese defenders that did not die primarily were ones that were found unconscious and then captured that way. And there were 26,000 U.S. casualties, some of them injuries, some of them deaths, but a number greater than the number of defenders. And a lot of debate went into, should we have fought that battle? And all that goes into it. Do we understand how much is behind this picture? And I look at it and I say, the picture communicates something. It's people working together. They're striving to lift that flag, which is a symbol of freedom. And this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at some scenes today and what's behind that scene and what does it communicate. So here's my first point, the pageantry of nativity scenes. And I've selected three, three different scenes because when you look at that nativity set and you have all of the characters there, you can't go to one verse and find that. There's not a verse where the shepherds and the wise men were together at the manger scene. So I'm breaking it up. I'm going to show you three different scenes. And here's the first. It comes out of Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And this is the stable scene. And it says this in verse 7 of chapter 2. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So I was thinking of pictures to depict this. If you came and golfed at our miniature golf um, journey to Bethlehem, we had actors in different scenes from the Christmas nativity story. 
This was the, you can kind of see the sign, no vacancy. These were the, in, this is the innkeeper and his wife. I, I, I chose a picture of someone with, who, who looked really, you know, grumpy and was not going to let anybody come through the door. Just randomly selected this off of Google. So um, that's the, the picture we got. No room in the end, you know. And this is important. That's part of the story. Because there was no room, they end up in the stable. They end up, and we know, we, we get stable from, he's in a manger. A manger, the word there is actually a trough for feeding animals. They're laying him in the trough. Well, if they're laying him in the trough where they feed animals, they're in the place where the animals are. And this is the idea where we get this scene, this, the iconic scene, if, if I could say, even within culture outside of Christianity, that's how they see it. It's the, it's the stable with the animals, but there aren't shepherds there yet. There aren't wise men or magi there yet. So what do we get out of the scene, right? And a couple thoughts for you. When I look at that, because remember I told you what words come to your mind? This is what I see in the scene. Number one, the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. He is the king of the universe. The son of God. All powerful, clothed in flesh. It's hard to even fathom that. The infinite closed with finite. And in the, in the history of the world, great kings of nobility don't come into the scene of the world in a stable with animals. I mean, just think about the scene, right? If there's animals, there's poop that's in there, and that means there's going to be flies and here's Mary giving birth in that scene to the king of the universe? It just doesn't fit. There's a, hum a humility there, a humbleness for Christ coming into the world in this manner. And I want to take you to Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read to you. I know if you're Christian, you know this passage, you've heard it. But in the context of the nativity scene, just think about this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient." There, there, there's an aspect to the nativity scene where what we're seeing in Christ is he's left his world and came into ours in the most humble, meager means that he could. Not rich and opulent in the, in, in the fancy places of man. But there's a humbleness to it. I also think about when I look at that scene, what it costs to follow Christ. And you just think about what it cost Mary to bear the child and what the public might have thought about her not yet married and she is, is pregnant. Joseph who took that on as well. The, the hard, arduous journey to Bethlehem. All of this. The sacrifices that are made. The cost to follow Christ. I take this verse out of Matthew 8, 20. I want to weave it into the nativity scene. In Matthew 8, 20, 
There's a person who comes up to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. And Jesus' response, I mean, you might think, yes, uh, there's a follower. But Jesus' response in Matthew 8, 20 is to say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And what he is communicating to him is, look, if you follow me, it's a type of journey where we don't even have a house. There's no place. I don't have a house. I don't have a castle. I don't have a palace. I'm going to be wandering on the mission that God has given me. If you follow me, that's your journey. And it, it fits. There's no room in the inn. There's no place to lay your head. To follow Christ means a road of humility and a road that it doesn't find its earthly place. Its ultimate place is heavenly. So consider the cost. An aspect to the nativity scene that says to you, consider the cost to follow Christ. That's the stable scene. Splendid in its humility. Now I want to look at the shepherds in the field after the angel and the, the host of angels have appeared to them in Luke chapter 2, verse 16. And it says this, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now, here is a splendid scene, another part of the pageantry of the nativity scenes, the shepherds in the field. And here's my, my observations. Just like I said, what word comes to your mind when you see the scene? Here's what I, I see, what comes to my mind when I see this scene. And the first is this, is that the gospel is for all people. It's for all people. And I, I draw this from the fact that they're shepherds. You may not see it in the scene. Just like when you saw those guys raising that flag, you may not have known all those statistics about how many uh, Marines landed and how many defenders and how many were wounded. Here's what you don't see in that is how they viewed shepherds. I'm going to take you all the way back, all the way back when God is trying to grow a nation out of a family and it's, it's Joseph in Egypt and his, moving his family to where he is in Egypt, and they come in, and they're trying to move in in Genesis 46, verse 34, and they say to Joseph, what should we say when the Egyptians ask us, what do we do as a job? Because they're going to have to integrate into the Egyptian society. <clears throat> and this is what Joseph says to him. You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even till now. Both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. In other words, I want you to identify as the lowest class of people, because God's plan is to grow a nation out of you through which this Christ child will come. And you know what? The plan would be in jeopardy if the Egyptians come in and intermarry with you and they bring their gods in with your families and then I'm going to have to judge you for that. It could put the whole plan in jeopardy. You must identify as the lowest class of people so you don't even live where the Egyptians live. They're going to put you over here in this other part and you live separated. And when that happened, that family grew into a great 
host of people. Later becoming slaves to the Egyptians, and Moses comes onto the scene, all part of God's plan. But my point is, do you see how they viewed the shepherds? The gospel is for all people. And this is a public announcement. That's the other thing. Not only would a, 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 a king of royalty be born into a stable where there's manure and flies, and that's a horrible situation to have a, give birth to a baby, but when a king of great nobility like this is born, there's an announcement that's going to go forward to all the kingdom. A king is like, I have a son. And where is the announcement? It's off over here on the side. It's a side announcement to the low class of people. Unto you is born a king. What is being said here? What is God doing? And there's, there's, there's part that you don't see in this that the gospel is for all people. And he starts with his announcement is to this low class of people. And they respond and they come over to see what is going on. Now hold that thought for a second because I'm going to talk about the second point. I'll weave these together, which is not only in this scene do I see the gospel is for all people, but also I see the sovereign plan of God. God chose them because there are way in which the gospel works that those who are of nobility, that those who are educated, that those who are rich, many times, not all the times, there's a barrier for them receiving the gospel because of their pride and because of their lack of perception that they have a need for the gospel. And so God often brings the gospel to people through the low. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for consider your calling, brother. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, I love that because it's totally antithetical to being a coach. Imagine that being your halftime speech. Come here, team. Sit down. Let me get you pepped up. Not many of you are very skilled. Not many of you are very fast. Not very many of you even understand the game, right? It's a horrible pep talk. And yet here Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. And then look what he says. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's, he's Digging at that pride. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one could ever stand before God and have a sense of pride. And so he works the nativity scene in such a manner. You can look at studies of the largest revivals in history. I was looking at a couple as I, as I was prepping this week. There are books that, you know, it's like the 10 greatest revivals. And I'm just going to tell you, one of the common things that you find in the greatest revivals in the history of the church is that when the gospel does move, it reaches every, every um, class of people. It is, it is not for just one, but the gospel is for all people. He may start oftentimes with the low, but it trickles upward. And maybe it's just that to start at the top, those who are at the top, but hold it. This is for our class. Maybe it wouldn't trickle down. What we do see 
is that the gospel is for all people. And you know what? That's what you see in the gospels, don't you? You have the Samaritan woman who Jews would not associate with. You have a tax collector sitting with Christ. You have the lowest marginalized people of society, but yet he also reaches a centurion, a Roman soldier. He also reaches Nicodemus. He also reaches people of higher class, of education. As a whole, given as a whole, the educated class fought against Christ. But here in the nativity scene, we see that the announcement goes first to the shepherds. They come over to see the Christ child. But we also have magi, don't we? So we do have some smart people who got the gospel. They had to figure it out. They had to take the long way around. Angel didn't appear to them and tell them. They saw it and connected the dots and went in search. But we do have them in the story. And that, I've got to include them as one of my nativity scenes that I'm going to look at. One of the splendid scenes then. So first we have the splendid scene of humility and the cost to follow Christ. We have the splendid display of the shepherds that the gospel is for all people and that there's a sovereign plan for how God unfolds it. And lastly, what I show you here is, is the magi not coming to the manger, but the magi with Herod. Okay, and in Matthew chapter 2, let me just flip over there. I want to read to you a couple verses. Matthew chapter 2, we get the scene where they come into town, right? And verse 2 says, they come into Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, now listen, he was troubled. And not just him, it says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. What? Why does that trouble you? And the thing I draw out from this that you need to take note of is that, excuse me, the gospel will have opposition. It's going to have opposition. And Herod, they should recognize it, right? But he's going to defend his identity against the gospel message. And in that scene, <clears throat> we get that even in the nativity, there's this opposition. Now, we've got Herod. He's in opposition, but here's what I want you to see. He is just a pawn. He's not the strongest piece on the board. And you know why? Let me take you to Revelation chapter 12. You know I like skipping ahead in this Christmas series. But, but uh, Revelation chapter 12 tells us who the, the, the true agent behind the opposition is. And, and Revelation 12.2 says, She was pregnant, she is, is Israel, and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We are talking about Lucifer. We're talking about Satan. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness. And what I want to show you there is the true agent behind the opposition, not even really Herod. He's a pawn. He is standing before the woman, the nation, or Mary, however you want to take that. She's giving birth, and he wants to devour the child. And you know in the story of the Magi, they go, they see the Christ child, they worship, they worship, they kiss forward. We talked about that in the first message. They honor him. And then, if you remember, they're told, don't go back to Herod. Because Herod said, tell me. When you find him, you tell me, I want to come worship. But the warning is, he doesn't want to worship. He's going to destroy the child. And so they don't go back to Herod. They go back another way. And when Herod finally figures out where these guys haven't come back to me, he puts a plan in motion. But the reality is that it's Satan behind it all. And I just thought about this. This is why I go back to weaving God's sovereignty in little Bethlehem, obscure, off to the side, shepherds in a field. It's not a big palace on the news being tweeted out. It's here. Why? Because when Herod went in motion, I got to kill him. It's like a needle in a haystack. How many male children are there throughout all the land? How's he going to find them? I don't know. They didn't pin it for me. And so uh, let's get them all. We're going to make sure we get them. I'm going to shotgun it out there so BB's everywhere to make sure we get a hit on the real target. Part of God's sovereign plan. And yet behind it all, you see the real agent is Satan. And so weaved into this splendid display is also this aspect of sin and death and murder in the nativity story. Now, let me just take that for a second and set it right here. And I'm going to go forward. That's the pageantry of nativity scenes. I want to look at the pageantry of heaven scenes. This is what I've done in all the messages. We've kind of looked at the Christmas story in the Gospels, and then we go to Revelation, and we get something that's future, right? So in Revelation... If I fast forward, we're in chapter 4. This is where we've, we've been looking, and I focused a lot on, if you've been here, the, the, the elders and the, and the creatures and their, what came out of their mouth, what they said to, to God on the throne. But I'm going to back up to verse 1 in chapter 4, and I want you to see the scene that is set. If you want to hear a splendid display, listen to John's attempt to describe what he has seen. Chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne... There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
Now, are you taking all that in? Remember, he is trying to describe with the vocabulary and earthly knowledge he has what he is seeing that is otherworldly and heavenly. And yet it's still a splendid display. And I put him up there. We talked about the throne. The throne was a, is a representation of God's sovereignty and his ruling. It is one of the centerpieces of the book of Revelation. Fourteen times in chapter 4, the word throne is mentioned. Close to 40 times in the entire book of Revelation, it's mentioned. The word throne, he's communicating to you the sovereign rule of God. A king. Precious stones. He is using the, the most precious things we have on earth to describe the beauty that he sees there. Rainbow. Like an emerald, he says. But notice it is a rainbow that is full circle. Not a half rainbow. It encompasses all the way around the throne. Sound and light, one of my favorites. You, you watch a movie, you like that surround sound. Get that bass up. You know, it shakes the couch when you're sitting there. This is surround sound like you've never heard before. Around the throne. Thunder. Flashes of light. We're getting a great show. And yet, despite that, in front of him, water, a sea, but like glass, which means it's perfectly calm and still it's communicating something to you about in the presence of God there is peace. The opposite of that is always tumultuous water, like a storm. There's trouble, not in front of God. The sea is perfectly still like glass. And of course, the throne room beings which we've already talked some about. The 24 elders are a representation of God's people, His church. The crowns represent rewards, how they served Him. Later they throw Him at His feet to show honor. The living creatures. Uh, I, I like how He describes the living creatures. It's like, and I, I told you this in the other sermon, you know, my, my daughter said, it's like a cat. No, it's not a cat. If it was like a cat, He would have said a cat. It's like something He hasn't seen. In fact, it looks like a combination. Not only them, but uh, something else we hadn't mentioned yet. There are these burning, seven burning torches of fire that represent seven spirits of God. I mean, this is a display unlike any Christmas display you're ever going to see. Okay? And yet, we try we try to capture it, right? I mean, like Washington crossing the river gives us the idea. I go, how accurate? That's probably a lot more accurate than our attempt. Let me show you. We, we, we have a, I have a picture where they try. Okay, everything I said to you is there. There's the thrones. There's the, the creatures flying around. There's the, but it just doesn't do justice, does it? I mean, I have to tell you, I don't look at that and I don't, I don't go, Whoa, like I'm just in, so enthralled. Everything else stops, and I'm just in amazement. 
It does create a lot of wonder, though, as I try to put it all together. But this is one of the reasons, by the way, that God says, do not make graven images of me. That is idolatrous. And one of the reasons for that is no matter what image you try and make of God, it's not going to be right. Even if you get some aspect right, there's parts of it that are so wrong, it's communicating untruth about Him. Don't try it. And by the way, the Bible says no man has ever seen the face of God. So let's just, I like this next one. It's the attempt at the creatures. This is on someone's tree, you know. This is the, this is the creature with all the eyes and the, and the wings. I mean, I look at that and go, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm terrified more than anything of that. Nice try at your attempt at, 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 at creating something that is accurate to what John talked about there. But this is what we see, don't we? John's description here, he goes on. I'm going to highlight one more thing. Verse 8 says, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, this is that creature, full of eyes all around and within, day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I just pick up on that never cease. There's an unending song of praise, words of praise. It's like all of your Christmas month you've told Alexa, play Christmas music, and it never stops. And it's in the background constantly rocking around the Christmas tree, oh, holy night, and it just goes on and on. And, and, and it's there. It's there. It goes on and on, unending. And here's what we have to do. We have to put these things together. Let's just think about our Christmas, right? You try to play the Christmas music, sometimes it doesn't go right. I mean, on our journey to Bethlehem, we put Christmas music through YouTube on and played it through the system, and all these people are in here with little kids, and then all of a sudden the commercial came on, and it wasn't very good. It was like, let us talk to you about, uh, what was it, Jessica? Where is she? It was like, um, yeah, I won't even say it. And, and Jessica is sprinting to the computer. <laughs> Got to switch that. It's like... Christmas lights. I, I just see some of you laughing. I think you might have been in here golfing when that, when that happened. But think about the, 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 the Christmas tree lights, right? It's like, how many of you have experienced, I put up the lights, you're like, not all of these things are working. And you're like trying to figure out which one. I've got all the spares. And you're like, take it out, put it in, take it out. Yeah, I can't figure it out. In my living room right now, I've got a string of lights and one section that's not lit. And I just can't figure it out. I've got, I got to try to fix that. You know, it's not perfect. But in that heavenly splendid display, never ceasing music without interruptions that are inappropriate. Lightning that flashes, gonna totally blow away broken Christmas lights. You've got down here, tree ornaments. Up there, jasper. Down here, we got the tree star. Up there, we got a rainbow that encompasses, right? Down here, Christmas trees. Up there, the tree of life. Are you getting the picture? It is splendid, a splendid display of the king. This is why I say I like the pageantry of Christmas because it reminds me of a future pageantry. And what we have here is but a shadow of what we will experience. And we can do our best 
to try to get it, but it doesn't do it justice. Now, let me just wrap all this up, okay? Because we've looked at the pageantry of Christmas scenes, the pageantry of the heavenly scene, and now I'm going to ask you, what is your scene? What is your scene personally? And I draw these three points from another pastor. I really like what they said. The first one is this. <clears throat> you need to know him personally, not just about him. Like the Magi, they knew about him, but they had to go and see him personally, in person. Like the shepherds, we heard about him, but they said, let us go and see this thing. They had to go to him. And I've been driving at you to say, you have got to build into your life this regular pattern of going to him to know him personally. It's not enough to just know about him. Knowing about him will not save us. You must put a faith in him personally and know him personally. And there's a scene where Jesus, they're talking about this, and they say to him, uh, I did this in your name, and I did that in your name. Don't I get to go into heaven? And Jesus can say, depart from me, I never knew you. And there are a lot of people that can be involved in, in ministries and church, but they don't really know him. They don't have a relationship. That's how you know. Relationship is regular contact interaction. Build it into your life. You've got to set it aside. If you don't, you become distant. It becomes religion, not relationship. And you need to be like those wise men. You need to be like the shepherds who in those scenes went to him to know him. Secondly, you need to serve him. If you really knew him, if you really knew what he has done for you in your life, you would serve him. You would give back to the one who has given you everything. How many acts of service are there in the nativity story? The, the, the act of Mary sacrificing, I'm going to serve which means I'm putting my needs before yours. Joseph, I'm going to put what you're saying to me before what I think. How do you serve? How do you serve God's church? The New Testament calls you to connect to the body of Christ in such a way that you're serving it and helping give it life. Every aspect of, of, of my body contributes in some way to the life of this body. What are you doing? And I'm not talking about philanthropy. There are, there are people who deny Christ, who don't know him, who go out into the world and do philanthropic things and have a sense of morality and purity about them. But they have nothing to do with the true and living God. You are being called to serve his family. Know him. Serve him. And lastly, it takes sacrifice to worship him. How do you ascribe worth to him? Every single day is the thing I'm talking about. You set aside some time, some time in your week, build it in. If you could only see him, that vision I'm trying to describe to you, that heavenly pageantry, that splendid scene full of color and rich, 
If, like John, he saw that in his earthly reality of being in prison and separated from family and the church is being persecuted, withers in the presence of the true heavenly reality. Somehow it just washes that away. It doesn't make it completely gone, but your perspective changes. This is temporary. This is eternal. And you've got to come before him with regularity to be strengthened in that way if you can see him and see the splendor of who he is, the wonder. I put those pictures up here. What's the word? To me, amazement, wonder, joy. And you must see that. And there are things in the way constantly. I saw this YouTube video where these people were going to record the destruction of this giant domed building. And all these people lined up. They had their cameras. But the YouTube video was like across the street over on this side. And you could hear the countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7. And everyone's getting excited. It's going to blow up, you know. And right when he goes, 3, 2, this ginormous bus was going down the street, caught on what was going on, and said, let's stop and watch this for a second. And it stopped right in front where all you can see was the very top of the domed building. And the people recording were like, no, move, move, bus, move, move, we can't see. And then it's like they hear, and you see the, you see the people going, whoa. And the people back here behind the bus are like, no. In fact, there's some colorful words that they share with you. But the point is, your personal life has got some buses in front of that vision of God. You need to make the time. And if the bus shows up, go over here or Tell the bus driver, get out of here. I don't know. But you've got to move your schedule in such a way that you regular, regularly are catching the splendor of God. One of my favorite pastors, David Jeremiah, says it this way. Sacrifice is at the heart of worship. Living every moment in the wonder of worship will require alterations in your thinking, your priorities, and your approach to every portion of your life. Some of this will be painful, you'll be building a profile of obedience, and you'll be clearing away impediments like large buses that block the wonderful view. But in the end, you'll count it all as a loss for the perfect joy of knowing God. Now, I just want to finish with this story. A, a reporter named Jacob Needleman, this comes out of the 70s, 1975, and he was asked to go cover and report on the launch of an Apollo rocket. And if you don't know anything about the 70s at the time when this was going on, there was a lot of upheaval in American culture. There was the withdrawal of, from Vietnam, a lot of hard feelings about the war that was fought there. There was high inflation. There, the politics were, were unsettling. And this reporter is writing in a book, and he's telling the story, and he comes into where all the reporters are, and he says as he comes in, he can hear the conversations going on, and it's full of cynicism. It reeks of it. The United States this, our withdrawal from that, gas prices are high, and there's complaining, and there's this cynical feeling there's no hope. It's disdainful. And then he says, all of a sudden, the ground began to shook, to shake. And he said, everyone stopped talking. 
And they began to look up and the rocket was launching and smoke began to come out like this and the orange glow. And they looked up and there it was. Good timing. Good timing. And nobody was talking. They were in awe and in wonder of being in such close proximity to something so powerful as that. Nobody was standing over there. And how much are you paying for eggs? <laughs> yeah, I'm just overpaying. They all just turned around with their jaws dropping. And I want to say to you, that is what it should be like when you're in the presence of God. It should elicit a sense of wonder in such a way that you're not complaining about the price of eggs. That somehow those things become so small in comparison. And there's this reality that we can grab onto. Father, thank you so much for the Christmas story. Thank you that we can look at it, that we can be inspired by it. You're greater, Lord, than a rocket being launched into space, and yet mere men can be mesmerized by a rocket. They can forget about the troubles of this world momentarily with their jaws slacked and their eyes wide open. Lord, help us to find the wonder in you, to find the splendor in you, the pageantry of your throne room, the splendid display, full and rich of color, to see that the Christ child leads us to that. The Christ child in the nativity scenes, we see the humility, we see count the cost, we see the gospel is for everyone, we know there will be opposition, but we can look down the road and we can see in the timeline of our lives that one day we will be in your presence. And it's like that rocket ship, Lord, even greater. It can take our mind away from the temporary to the eternal, to the splendid, to the wonderful. Help us to find that in this Christmas, Christmas season and be drawn to worship you in a way that, uh, that is worthy of who you, who you are to ascribe worth to you with our body, our body language, our words, our thoughts. We commit it up to you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and we'll worship together as we finish our service.